everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the live version of Journey to Developer. If you're catching us on a replay, I'm Deontay Chantel, real estate entrepreneur and developer. Pretty much all things real estate. I'm out of the New Jersey, New York area. I have a podcast called Journey to Develop Her, and it's all about my real estate development journey and also my journey to Jesus. So we have a great mixture of real estate content and Bible-based content. And we're going to have a special guest on tonight's episode of Journey to Developer. I'm going to start doing these episodes live versus pre-launched or pre-recorded. So tonight we have real estate developer Christopher Siegel out of Houston, Texas. He's going to hop on here in just a bit. I'm so, so excited. We're going to be talking about gentrification, how he got started in real estate, wholesaling, community development, and how to basically leverage partnerships. And that's very important because that's a part of my journey as well. And Christopher or Chris Siegel, he had maximized leveraging partnership on his real estate journey. Hi, how's it going? I'm good. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for coming on with me. Hello, everyone that's just coming on. I'm pretty sure you know this familiar face, Mr. Chris Siegel <laughs> out of Houston, Texas. I invited him on to my Journey to Developer podcast. We, I saw, I think I saw you have a post about gentrification and what you're doing in your community. And I was like, you know what? We got to have a conversation. We have to talk about how, you know, individuals who care about their communities can actually make a difference. So thanks for coming on so we can have this, this dialogue. And no problem. No problem. Yeah. For those who don't know Chris, he is a real estate developer out of Houston. Um, he specializes in social impact investing, right? Um, you want to make sure the people... The neighborhood that I believe you're from the Houston area, like you grew up there, correct? Yeah, I'm from the region, from Port Arthur, Texas, which is right up the street, like out, out of the street. Okay. Awesome. So he wants to make sure that, you know, the communities that he's from can benefit from the preservation of the community, right? They, they're not pushed out of the community. So tell us about uh, what you're currently doing. And we're going to also go back and talk about your journey, like how you got to where you are now. Okay. Yeah. So I, I mean, I have a couple of different projects, just kind of really just the dispelling the myths about what we can't do in our own communities. Um, I've done new construction on like abandoned grocery store sites and brought back, you know, young black working professionals that wanted to live in the city. They, they have value appreciation already. We didn't displace anybody because we did it on a site that didn't have any residents. Um, the million dollar crowd funds where we bought rental portfolios, it's long-term renters in the community, people that look like our aunts, uncles, and, and, uh, you know, grandparents, they're just on fixed income, section eight or anything, they're just on fixed incomes. And if we don't buy those communities, um, as those neighborhoods just re revitalized and gentrified, uh, they're going to lose their residence. So the whole purpose of that, of that, uh, mission was to buy it, uh, make it a little bit nicer, take some of the vacant buildings that were commercial buildings let them make money so that I don't have to, I don't have to raise the rents on everybody else. Um, that project went, is going really well. Um, it's, it's going up 50% in value. We've doubled the revenue. 
all off of just uh, bringing the commer- the vacant commercial space back online instead of touching the rents on existing residents. So they've been paying five residents to $700 for the last two years since I bought it. We haven't raised anybody's rents. And then now we're doing a bigger project where we taking over a large five acre church site that was like one of the cornerstone uh, first mega churches in the, in the fifth war neighborhood. But, you know, since the membership has gone down, the way people worship has changed. Those older churches are having a lot, lot, a hard time hanging on in a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of cities. Um, but they have prime real estate in all of our neighborhoods. So working with them was able to, uh, you know, get them a large amount of, uh, payout, you know, f- to buy the property from them, let them stay in the property so they can take that money and go find another campus. Now we're going to convert that property over to an apartment complex and the top performing black charter school is coming, it's going to come on the site. Wow. That's incredible. Talk about community, like it uh, revitalize that one area can just add so much value so much, um, assets to the community. So I think that's incredible. And let's talk about how you actually got started. I, I believe based on my, what I've heard about you on the internet, you actually got started Well, you already had a whole career, but you got started in the real estate space as like a consultant or a wholesaler, correct? Yeah. Re- real estate actually started flipping houses first, uh, back in 2008. Um, like a year and a half into my corporate job, as well as I was sold to dream, I couldn't do that. So I had to figure out my early exit strategy. Started reading books, real estate kept coming up. And so, um, I got a rental property first and I started flipping houses and that, that's really how I got started. And I kind of backtracked. Um, I did that for a while and then I realized, well, I wasn't finding my own deals. So it made sense for, for me to go out and find my own deals. So I started a wholesaling company. Um, I actually sold a lot of my, uh, my individual houses that I had as rentals. Cause I wanted to refocus on doing bigger projects. So I was able to, um, you know, pivot there like 2013, figure out creative ways to, uh, own larger pieces of property. Instead of going to a person that owns one or two lots or one or two houses, mm-hmm. I'm going to somebody that inherited a whole block of houses from their parents and, and they're old, they don't want to deal with it or they're mismanaging it. And that's how you buy blocks. Literally, um, before it was a catchphrase, 2013, 2014, I was doing it. And I was able to negotiate with the sellers where I gave them a down payment, started making payments to them because they didn't owe anything on it. They inherited. So now right. seller financing its entire blocks. And that's how I got started uh, doing the bigger scale stuff. That's awesome. That's, <laughs> I just love that, um, that creative, like, I mean, I, I actually got started as a wholesaler. For those who probably don't know me, never heard of me, I actually got started as a wholesaler. And the point was, to do that, to get capital, to become a developer, right? So your strategy of leveraging those homeowners equity, basically, <laughs> and creating this creative financing, you know, or seller financing um, technique to help you, but also help the community. I just think that's brilliant and that's awesome. So everybody- Yeah, I mean, it's, one, it's one of those things where, well, when, what I realized is when I started, before I started Houston, I was in Baton Rouge buying a property around my college, Southern University. And I noticed everybody I was talking to was like a second generation uh, property owner. So their parents had worked really hard, saved up all this money while we talk about redlining and all this other kind of stuff. These are people that started before Fannie Mae even existed. So there was nothing to redline. You know, they had to actually right. save up money, work hard, build these houses out of pocket. They own this real estate. They've owned different parcels in the community. And then they raise their kids with, with a mindset of, 
well, I don't want my kids to have to go through what I, what I went through so that they get that silver spoon. But then what happens is that, that that kid doesn't have that same work ethic. They inherit all that property. They don't know what to do with it. And it goes down. And so, you know, what I realized is that that's a sweet spot for me to come in and say, hey, look, I just want to pick up the legacy that your parents left. And I'm not trying to shortchange you. I want you to, matter of fact, if you own a finance attorney, I can pay you more than a bank would pay you because we're not specifically focused on an appraisal. Because I'm looking at it like, if I buy it now and I can, I got 10 years to pay you off, I know the value is going to be more in 10 years. So I can pay you a little bit more now and you know, you're going to start here, but eventually the value is going to get here. And then I'm still going to be, I'm still going to be up. I'm still going to make a profit. You're going to get more than you could have gotten out of it. And it's a win-win. So yeah, and this is like, there's no losers in that situation. It's not taking advantage of anybody. It's just making sure we maintain control of our neighborhood in creative ways that a bank wouldn't allow us to, that you know, most big investors wouldn't think was possible and uh, just become a creative. Awesome. 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 So again, I hope everybody is picking up what he's putting down because he's dropping all the gems <laughs> on how you can do it in your community, basically. Like there's no, I'm not going to say everybody's going to be okay with uh, what he proposed, but it's definitely something you want to consider um, when you just don't have no other way to get started. So I think that's awesome. Now, yeah. when you first, what were your goals when you actually first got started? Like, did you know you wanted to be a real estate developer from the very beginning? Or is it something that just got mixed in and it was like, you know what, let me just do it. Like, was that always your life goal to be a developer? Nah, I was, I was entranced by HGTV, flipping houses. You know, that's, that's what, that's what was attractive. Everybody was bragging about how much money they made flipping houses. And I started realizing, you know, when I'm looking at the, the person that I'm learning from how to flip houses, they don't look like me. They're not from my community, but they're telling me to go to my neighborhood and get all the good deals. And then I'm realizing, well, damn, I'm actually accelerating gentrification by following them up. And so I'm like, I don't like that. Uh, let me figure out another plan. So then I even go to the other people that look like me that are investors, that are builders. I go to the Ivy educated PhD black people. And they're telling me it's impossible. It's just the way it is. You think I leave the hood alone or you're going to take advantage of people. And I'm like, nah, that's a better way. I'm going to figure this out. And so that's when I hit reset. And I realized the only way you really do that is to be the person that comes up with the original concept or figures out a way to repurpose something. That's what a developer does. Everybody else in real estate makes some money off of the idea of a developer because a developer takes either raw land. That's nothing comes up with a concept, builds it all out. And then the developer can either leave it where it is once, once he's got the streets and all the infrastructure in and sell it to builders, or he can continue the project himself, or he can take an abandoned building and say, Hey, I want to repurpose this and do something else with it. Now, whether he actually ever picks up a hammer or not, he doesn't have to be a contractor. The developer is the one that comes with that, with, with that, with that whole plan and takes the biggest risk because you're risking all that money on the front end to put this plan together before you even know if it's going to work. So that's when I realized the role for me is developer because I don't like having to wait for somebody else to tell me when, when I can do something. I don't like the fact that, uh, a lot of people that are caught up in that cycle of just the construction part of the process tell you, you can't be done. And I, I just, so, you know, that, that's been my whole mission. That's all I've been really working on proof. Again, incredible. So these projects, first of all, you. You, un you really understand the concept of leveraging. So you leverage um, 
the self-financing piece. Now you went on for these bigger projects that you're working on. I, I know mm-hmm. you have like 250 units in your pipeline. Um, and you also have about maybe 30, 35 residential development projects coming up shortly, right? Um, and I do see that you partnered with some really big uh, developers who have about $5 billion in real estate development projects. Mm-hmm. How were you able to pitch these bigger or larger developers? And what so, well, I tell everybody this, and again, anybody that follows me, sorry to the floor, your audience probably hasn't. There's something called the success triangle, right? Uh, you need three things to be successful in anything. You need the knowledge and experience, you need the opportunity, and you need the money. And most people think you got to come to the table with all three. What I realized is all you got to do is come to the table with one. So my thing was, let me go to the table with the right opportunity. And then I'm going to go find the people with knowledge and experience. Once I have the people with knowledge and experience that recognize that opportunity, then we collectively go and get the money. And so that's, that's the shortcut to it. So um, I knew that the project that I had on the five acre site at the busiest intersection of Houston, right across from a $2.4 billion development that's actually building a golf course. The complete epitome, like the textbook version of gentrification is going, going across, going, going on right across the street, basically. Um, and so I own this property, historically black church, it, it fits all the points. Um, it's in a neighborhood where we've already gotten some type of control. I've already got, you know, some awareness of how I move in the neighborhood. It was, it really wasn't that hard for me at that point to go talk to a bigger developer and say, I've done the hardest part. I've found a good deal. I found a good site. Uh, now we just need to work together and partner on how to, how to uh, you know, execute it and get it across the finish. Incredible, incredible. And I'm assuming that, I do know you have a um, community, correct? Or Instagram, like, do you have like, well, actually, I know I've seen it. So you have a community. Yeah. Wait, 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 what do you mean by community? I mean, I got a big following on social media. Is that what you mean? No, no, no. Meaning like you're showing people how to become developers, correct? Um, yeah, so I haven't, I haven't put a formal program around it yet. Um, but I do take people on one-on-one that are, that are in that stage of where they're going ground up with the project that they're looking at how to develop something. Yeah. I will help them and guide them, um, as much as I can practically. Uh, but we are, I'm working actually on a, a group, uh, effort right now with some other developers, like the ones you talked about earlier, Well, we, we will be all collectively uh, doing this. So, um, what people may look at me. And look at the big project I'm doing and want to ask me how I did it. I'm going to be the most honest person to tell you, I'm still going through the process of the first one. So I'm not about to go out there and act like I'm an expert and tell you how to do a project that big. However, I do have some people in my circle that have completed. Um, and so for right. me, it's always like, I can tell you how I got to where I am. And I can tell you how I plan to proceed forward, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you I got the blueprint. Now, smaller projects. Yeah. You want to do a million dollar crowdfund. Yeah, you want to, you can do, I can, I can show you how to do that for sure. If you want to, you know, buy a block and do some new construction on it, I can show you how to do that. But do a $60 million development, uh, which is a much larger scale. Um, I'm still in the process of getting this one done. Either way, that's incredible. I'm actually in the same, you know, ordeal. I'm focusing on the residential because it's easier to me. <laughs> but I do have like a hundred, um, well, it's actually 150 community development in Kansas City, Missouri, but it's not commercial, right? So we can build, you know, four or five houses at a time, but it's not like building a, you know, a 250 unit building. That's a totally different animal. Mm-hmm. The money is different. Everything about the project, the structure of it is different. Um, so I definitely um, 
understand. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Yeah. But awesome. So I do see some questions. We're going to tell everybody to drop your questions in the question box. So we can have Chris answer a few questions. I know someone asked one, but I'm not going to scroll up. So. <laughs> yeah, me. But someone said, um, I believe I am smart cookie. She asks, do you ever worry about bigger developers stealing your ideas? The great thing about real estate, if you do it the right way, is there's so much opportunity out here that it doesn't matter. Number one. Number two, you always have to control whatever site you have envisioned for your project. You need to control that up front. So once you own the site, nobody can steal your idea because you own the property. You control the property. Site control is the most important thing in any type of real estate development when you're doing ground up anything. Even when you're a wholesaler, some people try to, you know, talk to an owner and then go try to talk to a buyer before they put it under contract. And now you, you've exposed yourself because if that potential buyer wants to be a snake, they can go around you and put that same property under contract and you lose that deal. So you always want to protect yourself with the paperwork first. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm not really ever scared of anybody stealing my ideas. Uh, what I really want is for everybody to watch what I'm doing and duplicate and replicate in our, in our neighborhoods across the country because it's, it's way too much work for me to do on my own. And I get tired of people telling us we can't do it. And I, you know, sometimes I get caught up even, even now on posts when people get in my comments and start regurgitating facts or, you know, previous things that they've heard from other people about why it can't be done. And I'm like, if you go check my page, actually, I've already done it. Like I'm not, I'm not talking right. about a point of theory. It's done. And so once, once we get that, once we take those excuses out of the way and we actually show case studies that are successful in our own communities, then the conversation has to change and it doesn't have to be everybody, just a few people that get it. As long as they get it, they run with it. We can change our communities. I agree. Like. I, again, this is why I started the podcast, Journey to Developer. I started with zero dollars, got fired from a job, everything, right? Um, I was even, you know, I was able to leverage relationships in my city, Newark, New Jersey at the time. I live in the next town over now. But Newark, New Jersey was able to leverage the tons and tons of land that they had, right? East Orange, New Jersey, I was able to leverage that same type of process where I was able to buy land for $5,000. If you set up your entities correctly, or if you have a nonprofit, Newark and East Orange, and many parts of New Jersey, they will actually give you land. So it's all about knowing what they want, knowing what the master plan is for the cities, politicking and uh, making sure you're networking with your politicians and councilmen to see what, they, what the need is, right? And then once you know what the need is, you could kind of work around that. Yeah. I'm sure you could agree. And um, the whole crowdfunding aspect, mm -hmm. definitely everybody should be taking notes from you because I, I, you were probably one of the first that I've seen that was crowdfunding. And um, I, you know, <laughs> I personally been asked, would I crowdfund? I'm like, no, I don't want to take nobody money to do nothing. I don't want, I don't want to be held it. However, I do like the way that you handle it. You, you're very organized. And I think that's the main reason why the bigger developers, they're attracted to you. They're like, let's, let's do it. Like we, they love, not only of course you, you're, you're known socially, but you were organized. Like, I think I was able to see like your whole, um, breakdown of, I forgot. Well, you could tell us what it's called. If we wanted to crowdfund, yeah. what are the documents that are needed? 
and how can we actually go about it? Okay, if you want to crowdfund, number one, I always tell people, don't crowdfund if you don't know what you're doing. Don't crowdfund if, if you're learning, if you're learning the process. Um, right. Only crowdfund once you've got experience and you feel like you got a good opportunity to bring other people in. Um, the project that I did, I could have easily went to a few investors and raised the money. Because um, it was only like, it was only like a million dollars. Which seems like a lot, but once you get in the real estate world, you realize that's really not a lot of money. Um, but what I realized was this is an opportunity for me to kind of take away the excuses because I hate the fact that we look at problems in our neighborhood and then we want to be mad at LeBron and Oprah for not coming in and saving the neighborhood. You want to be mad at Jay-Z for not buying more projects. Well, we got enough money collectively to buy these things and do it ourselves. And so this was my example of how we could do that because it's not ground up development. That's a lot more risky. That's where you're taking people's money and it may take you two or three years to get the project finished, get it leased up, whatever you're going to do, sell it. But when you can buy something that's already got long-term residents from the community and buy it at the right price, then everybody can make money immediately from day one. If that you close on it, we are, we've all now protected all these residents in this community. Um, and we bought it at the right price because you also got to negotiate a good deal. You can't overpay for nothing. You negotiate a good deal, which is another one with us on seller finance terms. And uh, so once I did that, I was like, okay, I got this perfect project. Let me go see how I put the crowdfund together. So regulation, uh, CF crowdfunding is the tier of crowdfunding, the, the, the tier of capital raising for big investments where anybody can invest. Uh, before Reg CF, you had to be a credited investor, which means you had to have made over 200 grand a year for the past two years, or you had to have a net worth of over a million dollars, excluding your primary, primary residence. So that excluded most of us from ever been able to do it. But with Reg CF, anybody could invest at that point up to ten thousand dollars. And um, you know, it was it was up to you how much you wanted to invest. It was up it was up to me to make the minimum investment as small as I wanted it. So I made it two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, and the goal was to raise a million. And you know what I did was I, I laid out the blueprint of the project to everybody, and um, you know, through uh, putting it together, a simple presentation because. A lot of people that are going to be investing with you on this level won't understand the complicated legal terms and documents. So most importantly, you have to have a clear story, a clear plan, a, a clear vision of what you want them to invest in. And you need to be able to tell them in simple terms what they're getting in return for their investment. Okay. So that's going to be just your, your presentation. And it's going to be the basis for what you call a prospectus, which is, you know, a technical term for what you're offering uh, all the investors. And outside of that, you're going to have to have operating agreements that show this is a partnership. You know, I'm the general partner. You guys are limited partners. You don't have the right to come in and make decisions, but you do own parts of what I'm doing. The reason why you do that is you got a whole bunch of people that are putting in small amounts of money. Some of them have zero experience in real estate. You don't want to sell shares to shareholders that have the right to vote on things and possibly make bad decisions for everybody, right? So you have to have those documents. The documents also has to have to have to have the clear legal language that all investments have to have that says, this is an investment. This is not guaranteed. All your money is at risk. Okay. Um, and on top of that, if you're using an existing LLC from an existing business, you have to get it audited. Okay. So you have to have an, an initial um, audit that shows, well, no, I'm lying. When you start off the small amounts, you have to get a, an accountant to review it and say, these numbers look legit. So and what I always recommend for each new business is to have a brand new LLC 
So technically, it's not gonna be it's not gonna expose you to anything else you got know with the other businesses. You form a brand new company, brand new entity, then you get a, an account to review and say, hey, this is what he as the founder put in, this is what he's offering, this is legit. Okay. Then um then you set your your fundraising metrics, your goals, your your, your targets. And the first one is usually right around a hundred thousand. Uh, because that's the easiest one to get approved by the SEC. Once you get that, right. once you get, once you get that S, once you get that hundred thousand dollar mark, then you have to tell all the investors, Hey, I'm going to continue to raise more. Um, right. so you have the right to pull out now and they have like three days to pull out. So if you sold somebody on something after the first month and you don't, you've lost momentum, you could possibly lose some of those investors. You keep that in mind. So then after that, you go back and then you're going to say, okay, I'm gonna go to 500. So then once you go to 500, then they want to audit you or they want you to do another review. That's a little bit more in depth and you have to submit that paperwork. And then the highest one is once you want to go for a million or more, then you have to get a, a certified CPA audit to audit uh, all the numbers. And they have to look at, you know, if you started drawing on the money. So let's say you're going for, let's say you're going for the million, but you've already raised 250,000. Well, you can elect to start using some of that capital, right? So you can take a hundred thousand here, a thousand there. But then now when it's time for you to go for the million, they're going to, they're going to audit you on what you've been doing with all that money up until that point to make sure everything's been up and up and up and legit. Um, so that's pretty much the process you're going to go to. There's two ways you can do it. You can hire an attorney to set up you as your own regulated crowdfund. It's going to cost you 30 to 40 grand at least. Um, okay. and you have all the money associated with actually doing the raise, like how you're going to collect the money, how, you know, how you're going to run the administrative stuff. So you'll be 50 or 60 grand in, or you can go to all these platforms that have already uh, gotten certified for that part. So those platforms, uh, the one I used originally was black owned platform called by the block. Um, then there's, but there's a bunch of other ones like Republic real estate has one, uh, Funderize is one, all these are already set up and all they do is charge you fees to use that platform, which is usually about eight to 10% of the amount of money you raise. Um, and that's pretty much, that's pretty much how the process works. Um, it's not, and they'll give you a lot of the template documents that they want you to use. You will have to hire an attorney to review it to, to make sure everything's straight, but that's pretty much the process. Well, thank you for breaking it all down for us. Um, for those who are wondering, I'm probably going to save this on this platform, but if not, it will be on YouTube and all podcast po platforms. I can't talk right now. So this, the replay of this will be on iTunes um, and wherever else you listen to podcast episodes. Um, because what he just broke down, you're probably not going to find that <laughs> on like someone's YouTube page. Um, but so I do thank you for breaking that down. But let's really talk about how black and brown and even other colors, how we can actually change the narrative. How do you think we can change the narrative of gentrification? And I know someone asked, is gentrification bad? So we'll let you answer those two questions and I'll probably give my two cents. <laughs> okay. Um, we, the way we change the narrative on gentrification is we become the ones that control the revitalization. So what a lot of people forget when we talk about this, this conversation is the fact that a hundred percent of these black neighborhoods right now that are low income were once thriving black neighborhoods before desegregation, we had to live in our own communities. So all those vacant commercial buildings, those small stores, everything you see, those used to be thriving businesses developed by black people, owned by black people, run by black people, and we hired black people in the neighborhood. Okay. 
So after desegregation, we got so caught up in the civil rights movement that a lot of us decided we had earned the right to move out of those communities. And so part of the problem was, lies within the decisions that uh, some people made from our community, period, 100%. And people want to debate me with that, but even here in Fifth Ward in Houston, Houston, some of my open houses, I've had 80-year-old women come in and be like, my parents were living, they were mad when all of their customers left and moved to all the suburbs after desegregation. My parents had to close their businesses because all those people left. And so we, we forget about that part. So now that we're at a point to where, you know, today it's shunned upon to do anything good in a neighborhood because you're worried about displacing the people that are there. That's only because you've only seen a model where people target existing residents to get things done instead of saying, hey, what about all this vacant property? What about that drug house? What about that abandoned grocery store? Let's figure out something to do on that site. And so everything I do is on those sites. And everything has a life cycle, including a neighborhood. If we ever want to bring back the pride that we had in our own communities, we, we have to rebuild our own communities. The textbook definition of gentrification says taking something from a lower class and making it a middle class standard. That's all it says. So, I mean, it gets the negative connotation because most of the people that are doing it don't come from the neighborhood. So their idea of what's going to look better, what's going to be better for this area has nothing to do with what we think is best. So that's why we need to be in the forefront. We need to be the ones making decisions and we need to be ones controlling all of those narratives. So for me, uh, the word gentrification, it gets mixed reviews. We don't need that word. We can just call it revitalization. That's really what it is. Let's revitalize our own neighborhoods. Um, it doesn't have to be negative. We do need people focused on the low income people in the neighborhood. But what you got to realize is if you go into a neighborhood now and there's a 40 year old young person, 40 year old person there that's been there their whole lives. They also got neighbors and friends that grew up on the same street that took big risks. They went to college, they took out student loans, they started a business. Now they are affluent, they're doing better. So they took some risk to get out the community, right? Now, but that group that left gets less favoritism than the ones that are still there and those people have nowhere to come back to in the neighborhood unless we start building nice stuff for them to want to come back. And so when I started building my houses, people thought I was crazy. They were saying, nobody's going to buy this. I'm like, no, there's people that want to buy this. There's people that grew up in this neighborhood that would love to be able to move back to this neighborhood. And so that's, that, that's, what, that's what we are able to do when we, um, when, we, when we revitalize our neighborhoods. And the last and most important point is we always talk about the lack of fresh food options, the lack of grocery stores, the lack of businesses in our communities. Unless we do what I'm talking about, a business will never be able to go back to those neighborhoods and survive because there's not enough people in the neighborhood that make enough money for the business to say, okay, if I take this risk, if I invest all this money, if I hire all these employees, I need people here that live here that are going to patronize my business. And even if they decide to do it, despite knowing it's low income, they're really doing charity because they're not going to be able to survive. Grocery stores have very low profit margins, 3%, 3%. And most of that money is made off of fresh produce and the fresh meats. They don't make a whole lot of stuff in the shelves. So when we think about all those things, we have to revitalize our own neighborhoods if we ever want to bring it. Back. We've been, we've been trying to fight the government for years. We tell the mayors and city councilmen what they need to do. It has not worked. The only thing we got to do is really bring the money back. That means we really got to put our money where our mouth is and stop pointing fingers from the suburbs and move back to our communities. Preach. <laughs> and well <said. laughs> and another thing is um 
What I love about your business model is making sure you're not pricing out the the individuals who are renting in the communities. I think that's like a that's where I think people get the misconception of be um not be bad but colonization or gentrification. Uh, All of it. Yeah. Um, because it's not that they don't want we don't want the community to look better. We definitely do, but we just want to make sure we keep it affordable. So it's gonna take people who typically because for instance for me um I, i'm from brooklyn new york originally so i've seen what happened to brooklyn and then when i moved to newark it was because i couldn't afford to live in brooklyn right mm-hmm. and this is when i was a teenager like 13 or so um so i knew once i got into real estate investing and wholesaling i saw what was going to happen to newark and right now there's like no houses in newark under half a million dollars no multifamilies in newark under half a million dollars we're talking about four years ago, the houses were 100K, right? So for at least for bandos. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's all about figuring out a way to rebuild our communities, revitalize them, right? But also keep it affordable for the people from the community. Mm-hmm. Now, right. the outsiders right. coming in, we don't care what they pay, but we care about what the exactly. homegrown, right. home-based exactly. people are paying for their rent. Right. So right. this is where we have to be creative. We have to apply, like as developers, we have to apply for, you know, subsidies and home funds and whatever the government is willing to offer to make sure that our people can still live there, benefit from the community, um, and just keep the culture in our community. Yeah. And we, when you think about what an investment really is, it's just you want to get a return on whatever money you put at risk, right? And sometimes we focus so much on the revenue, which is the rents, that we forget about the asset value going up, that whatever you buy, if it's going to go up a hundred thousand over the next two years, do you really have to raise the rent on the resident? If whatever your mortgage payment is and your property taxes are, are still covered. So it, it has to be some level of socially responsible investing where you can balance the two. Okay. I'm not going to make all my money off of this because I want grandma to stay in this house, but I know the value is still going to go up while she's paying me rent where her rent level was. Right. Then on the other side, I'm going to say, well, let me go buy this vacant commercial building and do something creative with it. Let me turn it into an event space where I can make 10000 a month. That's literally what I did with the Buy the Block Project, the little right. hundred square foot space. It makes 10000 a month now. So now I really don't have to raise grandma's rents at all because I took something that nobody was even looking at and created more revenue than I could ever make off of raising grandma's rent on her. Now, in the meantime, I can go to other neighborhoods too and invest and get high returns, you know, and do things over there. But then you've got you to have a balanced portfolio where, where you, if you look at everything overall, I'm happy with my return on my investment overall. That's the only way it's really going to work in our communities. We've got to stop looking at each little piece and say, we've got to maximize it and, you know, pull every single dollar out of That's how we displace people. Definitely. And it's not about, because I know there's a few people out there that's going to say, well, I'm raising the rents if I already own or I'm buying for inflation. Cool. Mm-hmm. Because you can get, in many in many markets, um, the market rate for the rent. Section eight is paying market rent. So mm-hmm. let's just be frank. Section eight is paying good prices for market rent. So you can take that route, right? So um we're not saying, you know, we want everything to be super affordable, super cheap, as if it was five, six, ten years ago. No. But we need to have a balance to make sure our communities are not overturned or um we're not pushing our people out. And I don't even know where, well, based on the research, they're going to more 
um, suburban areas or more rural areas or more poor poverty stricken areas, our people versus being in the areas where they have accessibility to more jobs, more opportunities or whatever the case may be. So we need to prevent that because right now, if I look at what's happening, even in Kansas City, Missouri, like they're one, they're raising the taxes. So these legendary or um, existing community members can't afford to live there, right? They're dumping billions of dollars there. That's cool. But where are these people actually going <laughs> once yeah. you get them out, once they can't afford to be there, even if they are paying higher taxes or whatever. And, 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 and uh, on that point, cities have, a lot of cities have already implemented laws that prevent that. Um, I know Philly has a lot like that. Baltimore has a lot like that. If you're a senior in some cities or you owned your house for longer than 10 years, you are exempt from the same level of property tax increases that everybody else has. Bad rules just implemented the same thing. In Louisiana. So that's how you protect them. I mean, it doesn't matter. All the new stuff you build, yeah, y'all come into the neighborhood, y'all can afford these expensive houses, y'all can afford to pay these high taxes. But for right. all of our people that have been there for a long time, on fixed income now, probably retired, you know, can't afford to pay these extra taxes, we, we should not allow them to move their land. And we should be only electing people into office that are willing to push that same type of legislation in every city that we're in. And that, that's one way you protect that big, the, the, that, that big bleed rate that we have of a lot of people losing properties. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the older people that can afford. I mean, and I think, I think even in New Jersey, they have something in place for um, the seniors. But at some time, you didn't even make it to the senior threshold yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, it's like, so right now, like I said, a lot of cities have 10 years. That doesn't mean another city can't be more progressive and say, okay, if you've only for longer than two years or three years, you know, right. if you were here before our gentrification happened, then you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be exposed to the same level of property tax increase as everybody else. I agree. Is this high? Where I live, taxes yeah. are high. The hood is like 10000 a year. I'm like, whoa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, but awesome. This was great, great dialogue. Any other, well, any other ways you can think of that we can um, change narratives? Of course. He already told us, buy, buy, buy your communities, rebuild your communities, um, have a purpose of why you're doing it, because it's not always just about the money. Um, so any other advice you can give to anybody on how to get started and how to just change the narrative of gentrification? Yeah, I would say um, overall, just getting into investing everything where you're putting your money to work for you is where you need to start. Um, it's not, everybody shouldn't have the calling to want to be the investor, the flipper, but we, I mean, all, everybody that's doing it, you know, you can find people that are actively looking for investors to partner with on projects. And that could be your way to make passive money doing the same thing. Um, because if everybody all falls into one sector, then we leave the rest of our economy wide open for everybody okay. to take that over to, right? And so we need, we need that balance. Um, I feel like that's the most important part and I'm, I'm the opposite of most investors, entrepreneurs who bash people with jobs. I'm like, man, you are crazy to bash somebody with a job because if you ever want to build your business, anything larger than the mom and pop, you need some dedicated people on your team that are just as smart. They'll want to work for you and you can help them make money in the process and let them take their money and let them put their money to work in deals you know, or you know, investments, invest in businesses. All right, those, I'm all those are very important. Yeah. A job is very important. Yeah, I mean, we, we need, we need that. I mean, that's why we don't have any corporations in our own community. I mean, because we don't control any businesses that we allow to grow that much. Like I said, a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, the momentum that we had before desegregation, it kind of died. 
And so right. now we're at the point to where we should have, we should have more entrepreneurs that want to condone people. Hey, stay in that corporate job. Don't listen to me talking about be your own boss. Stay in that corporate <laughs> job. Learn everything you can from every department you can, because as soon as I get to this level, I'm hiring you. I'm bringing you in. Instead of bashing people, that, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense to me. Um, but I think that's just as important as the real estate, because guess what? We can build all the real estate. We can open all the commercial pro uh, properties we want in our neighborhoods. But if we don't have enough people owning businesses, enough people earning enough money uh, without being discriminated against in the big corporate arenas, then we don't have people to buy our house. We don't have people to rebuild these neighborhoods. So, I mean, there's so many different levels to it that we all got to uh, work together on. Absolutely. Well, this was great. I'm not going to hold you. Maybe we can do a part <laughs> two another day. More questions. There we go. But, but everyone, make sure you tap into whatever Chris is doing. Um, make sure you, like I said, go subscribe to the, this podcast. It's on iTunes. It's on uh, Google. It's on Spotify everywhere. So, so you can hear the replay of this podcast, okay? And we do have about like 27 episodes of all fire. <laughs> um, so go check it out. Go follow us on Instagram as well. And again, thanks so much, Chris. And hopefully we'll get to meet soon. I'm actually coming to Texas. I oh, sure. there. And I'm going to come be nosing and to eat. That's why I'm really coming to eat. There we go. <laughs> Some great food there. But um, if I am in town, I'll hit you up maybe. Okay. You'll okay, care. sounds good. Yeah, let's make it up. For sure, let's make it up. All right. Well, God bless everyone. You have a great night and take care. Right. Bye.